This morning I was um, just thinking about Lofty Mountain Grandeur. You don't really get that much in England, but there's a little path fairly close to where we're staying, and uh, there's a little kind of, I suppose it's a promontory as a technical term, but little cliff type thing. I was sat up there and um, just really enjoying some some uh, kind of time just to pray and, and think through some things and heard a rustle in the uh, in the, the tree behind me, looked, and there was Paul about 10 feet away doing doing the same thing where he was. But it was really special to, to get that time just to, to reflect, to pray, to, to talk to God about uh, things that are on our hearts. Uh, first morning, I, I decided we're going to have lo- lots of these slots in the time that we're away where we can actually, you know, we've just got to be quiet. We can't go off and have a chat with friends. It's, you know, real alone time. And uh, so first morning, um, headed off, and I'd heard that there was a good view in a certain direction. I went there. I couldn't see a thing because it was foggy. All I got was wet shoes. Uh, but then after that, everyone else said how wonderful the view was in that direction. So it, it, sometimes you go somewhere and it, the view's there, you just can't see it. You know, we were a few years ago, we were on holiday in the northern, northeastern part of Italy in the Dolomites, uh, which are kind of a small mountain range next to the Alps. And we went up to uh, one mountain, I can't remember its name, but went up in the kind of chairlift or whatever kind of uh, cable car, is probably the word, and got to the top, came out. And it was just cloud, completely cloudy. And yet as we were up there, after a little while, it gradually kind of burned off and then everything appeared. And it was all there the whole time, just incredible mountains and rocks and snow and everything. But we couldn't see it because of the cloud. And once the cloud cleared, then we got to see clearly just how beautiful the place was. And the passage we're going to look at today in Mark's gospel is a passage that kind of is pointing to that, pointing to the fact that something can be there and yet you can't see it. And sometimes it takes a while to see it and seeing it is really, really important. We're in Mark chapter 8 and uh, in the church Bibles it's on page 844. Um, We're going to jump in at this story a story of a healing, and it's kind of unique. It's kind of different from, I think, every other healing that Jesus does. It's in verse 22. And it says this, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. That's a little bit weird, isn't it? I mean, we're kind of used to by this stage in Mark's gospel, if there's a storm, Jesus speaks and it stops. If there's a crowd, Jesus gives thanks and the bread multiplies. You know, basically anything, Jesus just takes care of it. Someone's dead, raise them. You know, just he's kind of pretty consistent when Jesus does a miracle, he nails it. Right? He's got no kind of, uh, he's, he's not like me with DIY, right? I, I've got a consistent two, three, four, five attempt kind of approach. Jesus has got this consistent, if he says it, if he touches it, if he extends his intention to do it, it happens. And then this guy, it just kind of doesn't work. Why is that? You know, you've got this, the, the whole kind of initial healing. What do you see? I see people like trees walking. Ah, try again. Okay, good. Now that worked. Phew. 
Was this a low moment and, you know, was this Messiah battery kind of week at this point? Like what, what is going on with this story? Actually, the reason Mark puts this story right here is really significant. It's a, a story that is not just a healing miracle. It's also like an acted out parable. It's demonstrating something uh, that was going on through the whole of Mark's gospel. For the first eight chapters, uh, the, the big question kind of hanging over everything is, who is Jesus? Who is he? And we know that from verse 1 of chapter 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Well, who's Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of God. But no one seems to get it. The disciples don't seem to get it. His family don't get it. The authorities don't get it. The Bible experts don't get it. In fact, it seems like the only people that get it are people who have a demon, and so the demons get it, or people who are really desperate. But apart from them, the people who should get it, the Bible experts, his own family, and his disciples, they don't get it. He's right there, and they can't quite see who he is. It's like there's a sort of a fog in the way. And another thing that's interesting as you're going through these first chapters is that repeatedly Jesus will do a healing and then he'll say, don't tell anyone. And we read that and go, well, that's kind of weird because surely part of the reason Jesus does a, a healing is so that the news can spread and people can be attracted. And, you know, it's, it's a kind of PR thing. Surely, I mean, why not go viral, Jesus? Why, why keep it? quiet we see it in chapter 1 verse 44 and then repeatedly all the way through these first chapters don't tell anyone here he's saying don't go into the village what's with the quiet technically it's called the mark secret well why is it a secret why is it that jesus does a healing and then tries to keep it hidden all these things are kind of swirling together and they come together in this miracle and in what immediately follows. First of all, what's happened in the past? Well, there's been a whole sequence of, of, of stories that we've seen, and obviously we've skipped some, right? But just think about kind of the cumulative effect of what we've heard over the past weeks. Chapter 1, Jesus does all these healings, deals with a demon, uh, all the people are being brought to him, and then he goes out into the wilderness, uh, and there he's praying, and then the disciples come, and he says, no, we need to keep going, I need to preach in these other places too. Coming to chapter 2 and the, remember the man coming down through the roof and being lowered in front of him. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and the, the leaders are like, you can't say that. And so Jesus heals him to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. And then in chapter 3, uh, Andy spoke on the kind of tension that was building with the authorities. Chapter 4, there was the storm that Jesus rebuked and it stopped. In chapter 5, there was the woman with the 12-year-old problem and the man with the 12-year-old daughter. And both of them desperately needed Jesus' help. And then chapter 6, there was the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children with the five loaves and two fish. And then chapter 7, we looked at the what makes a person unclean. There's something wrong on the inside and only God can take care of that um, then chapter 8 last week there's another crowd of people and this other crowd of people are hungry and they get fed again with was it seven loaves and some fish and you kind of read through that and you think wow this is a whole lot of communication going on Hanamid got someone on the, the bread miracle duty okay so um 
So you've got all this stuff going on through these chapters, and, and we're reading it and going, yeah, go Jesus, yeah, heal the person, yeah, fix the problem, feed the people. You know, Jesus is, you know, he's, he's on it. But the people who are right there, the people who are up close, it's like they can see, but they can't see. It's like they can watch the feeding of the 5,000 and then they can't see 4,000 that need feeding. Why does Jesus have to do these things multiple times? Actually, it's partly because we're slow to learn, aren't we? I think all of us guys who've been away would, would say as part of you know, many, many reflections, we're so thankful that God is so patient with us. Because how often do we have to learn the same lessons? How often do we make the same mistakes? All the wives know we do, but you know, the fact that God knows that we struggle and that we repeat and that we put our foot in it time and again, and yet he loves us and he's patient with us. So there's this, there's this incredible thing going on for eight chapters of these, uh, these people watching Jesus and not getting it. And then we get this miracle where Jesus heals him and heals him so that he can see. You see the significance? It, it's kind of like an acted out parable, not to show Jesus' weakness, but to show our struggle to see who he is. And I wonder if maybe that's where we're at. I wonder how many of us are in a place where we know, but do we really see? And maybe we've come a, a certain distance and maybe we've understood a, a certain thing. Maybe we've got a certain level of understanding, maybe a relationship with Christ. And we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's cool. But it's like there's something missing. There's something not quite there. And so Jesus does this two-part miracle to show us that, hey, one thing, he's patient. And he's prepared to work with us and he's prepared to get us to the point of really seeing him for who he is. I suppose also on the other side, it would be good for us to think, okay, well, if, it's, if there's any sense in which my Christian experience falls short of what I think it should be, if there's any sense in which I kind of go, yeah, but when I'm talking about my walk with Christ, maybe part of the issue is what's happening right here that there's still more to see. Maybe some of us need to say, yeah, Jesus, I see, but. I see people, but they're like trees. Or, I, I see you, but it doesn't seem crystal clear. And so there's, a, there's two sides to it. On the one side, Jesus is going to do the work. He's going to be patient with us. He's going to lead us forward. He's going to repeat lessons. He's going to get us to a place where we hopefully can really see who he is. But then from our side, maybe we can also cry out to him and say, Lord, I'm not sure I'm seeing you clearly. Because if there is any sense in which my Christian walk is not what it could be or what it should be, then the problem is primarily not going to be on our side in terms of, oh, if only I would try harder, if only I could do better, if only I was a better Christian. The problem is primarily going to be, Lord, I don't see you clearly enough. Because if I could see you clearly, then I wouldn't be struggling in the same way that I am right now. And so we cry out to him and say, Lord, I want to see. Thank you for what you've given me, but please give me more. 
Now that's, that's in general, but actually in this passage there's something specific happening because after eight chapters of, of Jesus doing his thing and the people kind of gradually coming to the point of understanding him, we then get not just a, an enacted parable, we then get to watch it in the disciples themselves. So look at the next few verses. Verse 27, it says, and, and connecting to what we've read, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, if we had read from chapter one, verse one, we would get quite excited at this point because we're told in chapter one, verse one, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. And now, finally, the disciples who, you know, at the start of the chapter are going, I don't know how we're going to feed this multitude. Finally, Peter comes out with this statement, you are the Christ. And we want to go, good job, Peter. Well done. Like, finally, you've caught up with us. But we had verse one. Okay, so let's not get too proud of ourselves. So you get to this point and Peter finally makes this declaration, you're the Christ. All the people were talking about Jesus. He was the talk of all the towns. But they had lots of different labels, lots of different ideas. Is it John the Baptist? Is it a prophet? Is it this? Is it that? And suddenly Peter has clarity, given by God, a clarity that this is the Christ. This is the one that God was going to send. This is the one that is the answer to all the problems, the answer to every question. This is the one that is the fulfillment of all God's plans. That's you, Jesus. You're the Christ. Interestingly, Jesus immediately then starts to give them information. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Let's pause there. He said this plainly. This is such a key moment. This is like the hinge of the entire gospel. It's really important that we see this because for eight chapters, Jesus has been a miracle worker. Jesus has been a healer. Jesus has been somebody who could answer the questions and the problems that people had. But now, in the moment when Peter says, actually, you're the Christ, it's like immediately Jesus says, okay, now let me give you some more information. Why? Why does he do that? Why is this such a key moment in the story? I think a big part of the reason is, is this, that if we're not careful, we can only half see Jesus. We can very easily fall into a Mark 1 to 8 Jesus. You know what I mean? Like a Jesus who does things, a Jesus who is powerful, a Jesus who does healings, a Jesus who does miracles, a Jesus who feeds multitudes, who provides random loaves of bread, a Jesus who is there for the people, right? Almost like a Jesus who is our great therapist, our great counselor, our great helper. And we cry out to him and we discover that he's good enough. He's able to come through and what a great Jesus he is. But Jesus wants the disciples to know and Mark wants us to know that that's not a complete picture of who Jesus is. It's not enough to have 
Jesus the genie. You know, you rub the bottle, you pray the prayer, Jesus takes care of business. And yet for a lot of us in the church, that can easily be where we stay. Lord, I need you. I've had a rough night, got a tough day. Lord, I need you. This child's very difficult. Lord, I need you. Oh, my husband. Lord, I need you. You know, I've got all these struggles. Lord, I need you. And we can so easily come to Jesus with our needs, which is the right thing to do. Don't don't mishear me. It's the right thing to do. But we can easily keep coming with issues and keep seeing answers to prayer and end up kind of stuck with half a Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to have half a Jesus. He doesn't want us to, to be satisfied with just a Jesus who answers prayer, just a Jesus who shows power. And so the moment Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus says, okay, I'm going to die. Because you cannot have the Christ without the cross. You cannot have the the miracles without the the message of, of what Jesus came to do, the mission to die that he was on. You can't have the power of Christ without the passion of Christ. And so from this point on, Mark's gospel becomes really kind of almost heavy. We're going to have the Mark drama in a few months. And I can tell you, we've done it before, and it's 90 minutes long, and for 45 minutes, it's fun. We're laughing, it's energetic, but somewhere around this point, it kind of gets heavy. And from that point on, you go, whoa, Jesus came to die. Let me just finish the chapter, and then I want to pull this together for us with with some some thoughts. So he said this plainly, verse 32. And Peter, who is on, he's on fire, right? Peter is, he's just declared you're the Christ. So good job, Peter. This is good. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Ah, back to form, right? But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see what I mean? It's got heavy, right? Suddenly really intense. Why? Because Jesus wants his followers to really understand that he didn't just come to do nice things. Didn't come just to to serve people's needs. He didn't come to fulfill wish lists. He's very willing. He's very ready to listen to our prayers. He's very ready and willing to answer our prayers. So often he does so much more than we're even willing to ask him to do. He's, He's wonderfully gracious to us. But the cry of his heart is that you would understand who he is. And to understand who he is, we've got to understand why he came. And the reason he came was to go to the cross. Not just to do miracles, but to fulfill his mission. And I don't think I can overstate this for us. I don't think it's possible to say this strongly enough 
that the cross of Christ is the most important thing that we can think about. It's where we need to absolutely fix, like we need to lock the radar of our hearts onto the cross of Christ. Because otherwise we're going to be in danger of having half a Jesus. Having a a Jesus that serves us rather than a Jesus who rescues, rather than a Jesus who reveals, rather than a Jesus who fulfills, rather than a Jesus who does what his father sent him to do. There's a lot out there in Christian world that is half a gospel, that is just healing, just grace, just niceness, just goodness. And there's lots that's good within that. But Jesus didn't come to be a counselor. He came to be crucified. And so I just want to kind of pull that into three thoughts for us, just as we bring this together. Three kind of thoughts to to take away and to ponder and to pray about and to chase into our Bibles for. Apart from the cross of Christ, we cannot know God, Father or Son. Apart from the cross of Christ, we cannot know him. And maybe it would be good for us to think, hang on a second, have I allowed the cross to diminish and some other aspect to become my focus? And maybe the other thing is true. Maybe it's even helpful. Maybe it's encouraging. Great. But the cross is the lens through which we can see the kind of God that we have. You see, the danger is if we look at God apart from the cross, we will tend to end up with a God that is very powerful and impressive, a God that's very distant and very elevated. And we can easily lose sight of the fact that, no, our God is a God who humbles himself. Our God is a God who loves us from the very depth of his being. Our God is a God who is for us way more than we ever dare to believe. Like Paul says in Romans, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? See, all the other stuff is the other stuff, but, but here's the proof. Here's the core of it. It's, it's Jesus on the cross dying for us. Paul in Galatians says uh, the I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I now live in the flesh, this life that I'm living, how do I live it? I live it by faith in who? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Jesus and the cross have to come together. It's not an awkward part of the story that somehow we can get around. No, the cross is where we get to see the glory of who our God is. It's where we get to see his majesty revealed in all of its fullness. That most hideous, horrific death was the greatest revelation of what God's heart is for you and for me. And any time we move away from the cross, we're moving away from really understanding who God is. What kind of God he is, how much he loves us. Apart from the cross of Christ, I would say we cannot truly know God. Apart from the cross of Christ, number two, we cannot truly know ourselves. 
You see, if we just kind of have a Mark 1 to 8 kind of Christianity, then we have a, a Jesus who comes to us and kind of helps us and heals us and takes care of us so that we can be all that we think we're supposed to be. But the problem is we're in a fallen world and we don't even know what we're supposed to be. Everything's upside down. Everything's twisted. Everything's inside and out. But when we come to the cross, we discover who God is and we discover what his plan is. We discover what it means to be human. You struggle with self-esteem issues. Struggle with insecurities, struggle with, with whatever issue, whatever label you want to put on it. Right, that's because you're a fallen human in a fallen world. What's the answer? You go to the cross. Whatever your struggle, and it could be absolutely monumentally massive kind of you know, life and death kind of a, uh, an issue, or it could be the tiniest little thing. Sometimes we're so embarrassed to even share the struggles we have because we think either they're too big, no one can cope, or they're too small, it's embarrassing. But the reality is that when we come to the cross, we discover that's what we're worth. That's where our value comes from. That's how much God thinks of me. I may have a rubbish view of myself, but I'm certain that he doesn't because of the cross. It's at the cross that we can get God's perspective, not just on the mission that Christ came to fulfill, but on the people he came to rescue, which is you and me. It's at the cross that we discover, wow, I've been living for myself. I've been living for whatever, for my, my kingdom, my you know, influence, my money, my career, my family. I've been living for something. And then I come to the foot of the cross and I discover, whoa, I can let that stuff go. That is not what I'm here for. The cross is the one place in all of history where we get to see things clearly. Get to see how valuable we are in God's eyes. Even how undeserving we are, how absolutely unworthy we are. Yes, there's no sense of kind of puffing ourselves up. But he loved you enough to die for you. He loved you enough to pour out his love and his blood for your sake. That, that says something, doesn't it? And maybe all the kind of pottering around in the mess of this world where we think we're going to find satisfaction, where we think we're going to find life, maybe we're, we're, we're confused. We think that it's in the, the new car or in the job or in the new relationship or in, you know, in friendship or being liked or followed or whatever. You know, it's in, in looks or in fitness. or in, There's so many things that we can get caught up in. We come back to the cross and we discover, no, wait a second. God has declared all of that to be empty because if there was anything else that could offer life, he would never have given his son. But instead he sent his son to say, hey guys, this is what I think of you. This is what life is. Life is to give your heart away, to give your life away, to live for the sake completely of others. Let me show you what life is. And in fact, that can be the third point. Apart from the cross, we cannot know God. Apart from the cross, we cannot really understand ourselves. Number three, apart from the cross, we cannot know what life is. Did you notice that when Jesus went on, he said, okay, you called me the Christ, all right, I'm going to die. The third day, I'm going to rise again. 
Peter misunderstood it, a bit like a blind guy who can see but can't see, right? Yeah, you're the Christ. No way, you're not going to die. Oops, Peter did it again. But then Jesus carries on. And what does Jesus say? He then starts to define what it means to follow him. And what it means to follow him is to take up our cross and follow him, to be prepared to lay down our lives and follow him. Now, that would be way over the top if it weren't for the fact that Jesus has just said, I'll go first. He just said, I'm going I'm to be the leader and I'm going to be the one that actually literally dies on a cross for you. Now, if you're going to be my follower, having kind of planted this exclamation mark into this world and declared all of the other stuff to be empty, declared all of the other stuff to be uh, incomplete, inadequate, unable to rescue, unable to save, having said no to everything, he says, okay, this is what life is. Look at the cross now. What does it mean to follow? Same thing. Take up your cross, identify fully with him. He's not talking about you know, having a, a dodgy left knee. How's your leg? Well, this is the cross that I bear. You know? He's not talking about something like that. He's talking about being absolutely ready to lay down your life for him. In any moment, in the, the, the big things, in the little things. Just thinking about that in the last couple of days, just a little bit in conversation. How, you know, the, the kind of the big things... For us men, we can go, yeah, I'll do that. You know, if someone comes in here, you know, with a gun, fine. We're ready. You know, actually, it's only three of us in here today, so it's going to be pressure, isn't it? But, but you know, if, if there's a train coming towards the family, I'm ready. But what about the little things? What about the day by day, moment by moment, lay down our lives for those that we love? That's a bit harder, isn't it? Someone comes in here ready to make some martyr, okay, but what about the martyred moment by moment for the next 40 years? That's hard. And yet as we come to the cross, we start to see reality clearly. And reality is not what this world says it is, it's what God says it is. And so maybe that can be helpful for us, that maybe for some of us, we, we may never have seen Jesus clearly before. And we're at a point where we go, whoa, I need to trust him. If that's what the death of Jesus is all about, forgiving my sin, bringing me into God's family, introducing me to reality, I need to, I need to do whatever you need to do in response to that. Great, let's talk. We can talk afterwards. For the rest of us who've already trusted, who would already say, yeah, I'm a Christian, maybe we're... Maybe we're still caught in that half and half kind of position. Maybe Jesus is a little bit too much of a genie and not quite enough of a savior. Maybe we need to come to him with the depths of our hearts, with the emptiness of our lives, with the struggles, the doubts, the insecurities, the fears. Bring it all to him and say, Lord, I don't even know how this works, but I'm pretty sure that if you died on the cross, you can handle my heart. Here I am. I want to be yours. And I want you to do whatever it is you want to do with me. Uh, and I don't know what it means, but Lord, by your grace, I'm, I'm ready to take up my cross. I'm ready to be sold out for you. If that's what it took for you and that's what you ask of me, I don't even know what it means, but I'm ready. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Here's my brokenness, Lord. 
carry it forward. Here's my life in all of its complexity. Here's my struggles. Here's my anxiety. Here's my difficulty with my spouse. Or here's my, my fears about you know, how I'm doing physically or mentally. Whatever it is, Lord, here I am. And I just want to tell you that I trust you. And I want you to give me increasing clarity on who you are, on who I am, and who, on what life is as I kneel at the foot of the cross. You see, Jesus didn't want his disciples thinking they'd understood him based on miracles. He wanted them to know his mission. And because we stand on the other side of that, we're privileged. We don't have to wait wondering exactly what he means by this prediction we can just come back to the foot of the cross and we can say, Lord, help me to see more clearly the kind of God that you are, the value you place on me, and what it means to be your follower. No more games, no more gimmicks, no more halfway, no more token efforts, no more pretend Christian. Lord, here I am. I'm yours. You did that for me. I'm, I'm in it for you, 100%.